And as we're beginning this series in Ezra, we will be turning to Ezra chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts, beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all them whose spirit God had raised, to go up to build the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, and with beasts, and with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazzar, the, the prince of Judah. And this is the number of them, thirty chargers of gold, a thousand chargers of silver, nine and twenty knives, thirty basins of gold, silver basins of a second sort, four hundred and ten, and other vessels a thousand. All the vessels of gold and of silver were five thousand and four hundred. All these did Sheshbazzar bring up with them out of, of the captivity that were brought up from Babylon unto Jerusalem. Let's open up our hearts before God. Dear Lord, here in your word we hear once again of your faithfulness. We hear that you are a God who keeps your promises. We hear how you care for your people, how that you will not forsake them. Please help us to learn more of you this morning, to see more fully your goodness, your richness, your kindness, your providence. Help us this morning to be drawn closer to you, and may you, through your spirit, allow this word to penetrate each of our hearts and our lives. Please bless me as I deliver this message and bless the hearing of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. So while I read the whole chapter this morning, we'll just be examining the first verse. So with this, I have three points about this text. The first is a conquering prince. The second, a completed prophecy. And the third, a comprehensive proclamation. So we'll begin with our first point, a conquering prince. And I imagine you can figure out who that's referring to. Last time in our introductory sermon some months back, we looked 
at the history and the context of this book of Ezra. We had seen that Ezra happens right at the end of the exile. And just looking back through that history, the Babylonians had taken Judah into exile in how many stages? Three. And this had happened because Babylon had defeated Assyria at Carchemish. We've seen that in our study of this book and in our study of Habakkuk. And then, 70 years later, Cyrus conquered Babylon. And soon after, he let the Jews return to their homeland. And then afterwards, with changing Persian kings, some were more favorable towards the Jews than others. But finally, the temple was built under Ezra, and the walls were built under Nehemiah. Afterwards, the Persian Empire would collapse, Alexander the Great would bring in the Greek era, and that would lead right into the New Testament. But that's just a quick recap of the history we explored last time. Do you remember some of the religious themes we had talked about? There was the religion of Babylon. They worshipped gods called Marduk, Bel. There was the religion of Persia called Zoroastrianism, if you want a tongue twister. They worshipped a god called Ahura Mazda. Just basically means the supreme deity. But that was not the religion of the Jews. Their religion was something called syncretism. And what does that mean? That means taking parts of the truth, taking parts of idolatry, and mixing them together. And this was the religion of choice for the Israelites. Oh yes, they still believed in God. They believed in Jehovah, absolutely. They would go to the temple. But, but they would also give a little offering here or there to Baal or Ashtaroth. And they thought, well, that's just common sense. It's like an insurance policy. You go to every deity. And this is sometimes how we can think, isn't it? Oh, yes, I go to church. I make sure to do my devotions. I go to Bible studies. But it can't hurt to have some friends in the world to go along with them, to go to their events. I'll go to their parties and will look no different. We want to fit in with both crowds. So am I then just like a chameleon, changing my appearance to fit the moment? But maybe this is happening in a different way. And many in the church today are tempted to go along with our new secular religion, that of tolerance and diversity. And this may be at work, this may be online, this may even be at church. But there is this temptation to abandon the clear teaching of scripture and to conform to the world, to give them their little pinch of incense, as it were. But just as this false teaching didn't work out for the Israelites, so too must we remain firm to God's word and to his word alone. And so this book of Ezra 
was written to describe the restoration of the people of Israel. And it has two parts. There's the physical return to the land. And that's in chapters 1 to 6. But there's also the spiritual return to God. And that's in chapters 7 to 10 of this book. And so this morning, we're going to get just a taste of that first section, the physical return. Because in 536 BC, Cyrus the Great, the king of the Persian Empire, he grants this captive people the freedom to return to their land and to worship their God. Both parts, again. And now, we're not going to start in Ezra, actually. We're going to take a quick look back up the page at Second Chronicles. Look at verses 17 to 23 of the last chapter of Second Chronicles, chapter 36. The last two verses there are almost an exact mirror of the first two verses of Ezra. And there's that clear connection that we explored last time. So if you look at the whole section from 17 onwards, you'll see a sequence of events. And notice this pattern. First, the Babylonians bring utter destruction to the people of Jerusalem. Second, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the walls, the temple, the city itself. Third, he carried away the survivors to Babylon. Fourth, this is until the reign of the Persian king. And fifth, this all fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy. And now look back at Ezra 1. This whole process gets reversed. We see Jeremiah's prophecy is fulfilled. We see the kingdom of Persia established. We see the exiles returning to the land. We see the temple, the walls, the city are rebuilt. And we see Jerusalem again has people of all ages, young and old, rich and poor, because they no longer need to fear that foreign invasion. And this sequence starts right in verse 1. And this is in the first year of Cyrus. And there has been some questions. Okay, what is this first year? Is it the first year he's king of Persia? Is it the first year he conquers Babylon? Is it the first year he actually rules from Babylon? There's three different years. And the one we're using is the chronology of Dr. Nolan Jones, and he start this, starts this as the first year he's actually ruling in Babylon, where he sets up his government there, and that's where his court is. And that's in 536 BC. The next interesting thing in this verse, just a few more words later, is he's called Cyrus, king of Persia. And now, why is this interesting? Normally, these kings didn't call themselves that. They called themselves king of kings. Ezra 7.11 is an example. It says, Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra the priest. But that's not what you see here. As the Jews saw it, there's only one who's a king of kings. That's only God has that level of dominion. And this is again a question for us. Do we see God as having dominion 
over all of life. How often we just limit him to the religious sphere. Oh yes, he's in charge of that. But we might lock him out of our work, our leisure, our politics, our families. And so is Jesus the Lord of all of your life. Do I let his word guide and examine how I live? And if you claim that Jesus is your Savior, he must then also be your Lord. What's really interesting is that Cyrus' declaration takes place in which year? His first year. He doesn't wait around till his reign is completely secure, till every rebellion over there and there is over. He doesn't wait till the economy can handle all these people moving around. He does it right away. It's his first order of business. And sure, he may well have had his own reasons for doing this, entirely secular and geopolitical reasons for doing this. It might make him popular with the conquered people. It would give him a nice contrast with Assyrian Babylon who are harsh. He's a kind ruler. He has a light touch. He's giving people liberty. And this would also give him a bit of a power base near Egypt, which had rebellions. Sure, all those reasons exist. But don't miss who was the prime mover in this. It's God. It was God that moved his heart. And he moved it immediately. And with that, Cyrus didn't wait. Cyrus responded immediately. And isn't this a principle we can apply to our own lives? When God gives us a command, let's do it right away. Don't delay your obedience to God. When God commands you to repent, to trust him, to fight that besetting sin, that's not a command for later. That's a command for now. And this isn't always easy. It's so easy for me to say, yes, I know, but I'm busy right now. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. But there are things in life we cannot delay. And obedience to God is one of these. So then we must strive for holiness now. We must seek Christ-likeness now. We must deepen our love for Christ now. And that leads us to our second point. Completed prophecy. Because we see that this decree, which was in the first year of Cyrus' reign, it fulfilled prophecy. If you will turn to Jeremiah 29, we see that prophecy that gets referenced here. In that chapter, Jeremiah 29, the prophet sends a letter to those exiled in Babylon, right after the first exile. He gives them encouragement in their life there. He reminds them of God's faithfulness. But he also explains 
that Judah will have to suffer more judgment for its sins. And I'd encourage you to read the entire chapter later at home, and, but we'll be focusing on verses 4 to 15. So Jeremiah 29.4 Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away unto Jerusalem, from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses, and dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there, and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it, for in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, let not your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you, neither hearken to your dreams which ye cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely unto you in my name. I have not sent them, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you, and perform my good word toward you, in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go out and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the nations, and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again into the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. So did you notice what the prophecy was? It's in verse 10 and onwards when Jeremiah is speaking against those false prophets. He says, don't listen to the false prophets. But here is a true prophecy from God. God will bring his people back after 70 years. Why 70 years, you may ask? And the passage we'd seen earlier in Second Chronicles answers this question. It says, To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and, and ten years. What that says is that the land needed to rest for 70 years because Israel hadn't given it its Sabbath rest. And this goes back to Leviticus because there it says that Israel was commanded to rest the land, to not harvest it once every seven years. It says there, And the Lord spake unto Moses in Mount Sinai, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye come into the land which I give you, then shall the land keep a Sabbath unto the Lord. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field, nor prune thy vineyard. 
but Israel didn't keep this command. And so, as Leviticus 26.34 promises, the land will get its rest, but that's by way of an exile. The people have to leave. And so this is why there's 70 years. Because that's how many had been missed. But why is Jeremiah giving this message that there will be a return? It's because he's a message of comfort. He's comforting people in exile. That God is faithful. That he had not utterly abandoned them. That they would, again, seek him and find him. And this is Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, with a message of hope. And so even in the midst of despair, there is hope in God. And can you relate to the despair that these exiles must have felt? Does it feel that every day your world is just crashing down? Are you struggling with a cancer diagnosis, a difficult job, or no job at all? Are you struggling with marital breakdown or an unbelieving child? Or is it not any one of these dramatic things? Is it just that steady grind of life that's just wearing you down? It might be the struggles of parenting and dealing with the same problem over and over and over. It might be that each month you just see that grocery bill going up, 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 and you wonder how long you're going to be able to afford that. Or maybe you can barely pay rent, and you wonder, will I ever own a home? But whatever this circumstance is, remember, God does not abandon his people. He places these trials in their life to purify them, to sanctify them, to draw them closer to himself. As Jeremiah says, call upon God and go and pray unto him and he will hearken unto you. God hears your prayers. He will strengthen and support his afflicted saints. So then trust in God. When you're in these desperate circumstances, pray to him when you're in despair. God says, ye shall seek me and find me when ye shall search for me with all your heart. So if you truly seek his help in your sorrows, take that promise. You will find him. And we see, indeed, when God gave Israel this promise, he did perfectly fulfill it. In 605 BC, with the Battle of Carchemish, this first group of exiles was taken to Babylon. In 536 BC, that's exactly on the 70th year, the people returned to the land. So God keeps these promises. You can count on his word. Clasp tightly to his promises and cling to Christ, for he is our sure foundation. And that leads us to our third point, a comprehensive proclamation because we see then going back to Ezra that Cyrus 
granting this permission to the Jews to go back. This is fulfilling Jeremiah's prophecy. And now we can look at how this promise is fulfilled. It says, God stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. We have a God that acts in history. He moves the hearts of men. He doesn't simply hope that someone else will come along, do his will, and just kind of, well, I hope someone does this. No, no, no. God actively works to make it happen. He sways the hearts of kings and rulers. And if he did so then, why should we think he can't do so now? So if you're worried, when you look at the decisions being made in our halls of power, if you wonder, what's the future of this nation? If the wickedness of our leaders is causing you to despair, remember this, that God moves the hearts of kings and rulers. Despite the wickedness of man, he always accomplishes his purposes. The enemies of God will not and indeed cannot achieve victory because God already won. And in a sense, this idea that God stirs up Cyrus isn't a shock at all. Isaiah had prophesied this by name in Isaiah 44, if you can turn there. And this is more than 150 years before Cyrus. In these chapters of Isaiah, chapters 43 to 45, Isaiah is prophesying the future return of the people, the land. They will come back. So Isaiah 44, verse 24 and onward, say this. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish, that confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers. You see the God of action there. And continuing. That saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah, ye shall be built. And I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That saith to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee, and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass, and cut in sunder the bars of iron. And I will give thee the treasures of darkness, and hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which called thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect. I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord." 
and there is none else. Centuries ago, God had called Cyrus his anointed. The word anointed in the Hebrew is Mashiach. What does that sound like? Messiah. And you might be wondering to yourself, wait, I thought Jesus was the Messiah. And that's absolutely correct. He is the anointed one. But God had various earlier messiahs. They were shadows and types of the fullness in Christ. This word gets used of the high priest in Leviticus, of King Saul and David. Daniel uses it to refer to the final messiah. So here we see Cyrus is a type of Christ. Just as Cyrus is a deliverer here, so Christ is the deliverer. And what do we have here? We have a Cyrus in Isaiah, who is the anointed one of God. We have Cyrus in Ezra, whose spirit God stirred. We see that God specifically placed Cyrus in the course of human history. He disrupted the Median Empire and the Babylonian Empire, completely changed the course of history. God moved him to grant freedom to the exiles in Babylon. And so Cyrus served as God's appointed agent of deliverance for his people Israel. And just as God worked remarkably to fulfill his promises to bring this deliverer, this Messiah Cyrus, so God has worked amazingly to fulfill the promise of the Messiah. This is one who doesn't just provide short-term physical deliverance. No, this Messiah gives everlasting spiritual deliverance. Have you ever thought about how amazing it was that Jesus came into world history? Look at the prophecies that God fulfilled with Jesus coming. Look at how God brings in Caesar Augustus, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas, even Judas, all to accomplish the plan he laid before the foundation of the world. And so what should our response be to this? We should praise our God, as the song goes, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. And at the same time, maybe your mind is on something else. Because you're struggling with God's absence. You might think, sure, God changes history. But does he care about my problems? About my needs? Does he hear my prayers? It just feels like I'm a nobody. God must have more important people to be dealing with. Has God abandoned me. But what we see, there is no such thing as unanswered prayer. God will answer in his way, in his timing. God 
may answer in a way you never expected. But God has a plan. He will accomplish it. So if you've been praying for years for that lost loved one, if you've been struggling to care for that sick, aging family member, you're seemingly crushed by that chronic illness, whatever it is, remember this. God cared for that nobody who was exiled in Babylon. God does not despise the simple. If he takes care of the sparrow, surely he'll care for you. So in our text, we see God stirs up Cyrus, his anointed one. And this has a remarkable effect. We have this edict of freedom. This is proclaimed throughout the Persian Empire. It's pretty much the known world at that time. And this wasn't just for the Jews. As we mentioned in our previous exposition, this was for all the captive peoples. And there's a rather famous document which authenticates this. Do you remember what it's called? It's the Cyrus Cylinder. And the commentator Peter Pett includes this quotation. The holy cities beyond the Tigris whose settlements had been in ruins for a long period, the gods whose abode is in the midst of them. I returned to their places and housed them in lasting abodes. I gathered together all the inhabitants and restored to them their dwellings. So Cyrus brings deliverance for all these captive peoples. It's not just Israel. We see then the Messiah blesses all nations, not just the Jews. And if that was true in that era, how much more true is it with the Anointed One, with Jesus, our Messiah? He benefited every nation, every corner of the globe. In Him, as the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth are blessed. In Christ, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free. Christ is all. And in all, we see with this great commission that goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost part of the earth, the gospel goes into all nations. And look around today. Christianity has touched every corner of the globe. Look at the triumphs of the missionaries, the martyrs, who brought this gospel around that blessed all these nations. And this is a permanent gospel. Just as Cyrus wrote down this proclamation, he put it in the records, he made sure it would never be forgotten. And this is important later in Ezra. Because later on, some of Cyrus' successors had stopped the building project. And then the Jews started it up again. And then the king was asked, well, Look for the original record. Is there a record that they're allowed to do this? Is there not? We don't know. So in Ezra 6, you see, they found this actual record. It had been stored in the archives, rather dusty probably, but this was the record. And this is why the temple got built. And this is all because, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, once a king makes a decision... It's final. So when Cyrus made this proclamation, 
it could never be changed. And to draw yet one more parallel, isn't this how our redemption works? Once Christ elects someone and saves them, he will never let them go. Christ holds us fast, so if you but trust in him, there is nothing that can separate you from his love. So is this true of you today? Is Jesus holding you fast? Am I obeying his command to go with him to his promised land? This proclamation is far and wide. It's written in his word for a permanent record. The gospel has come to your ears today, this good news. Look at this Savior, God Almighty, who is our promised Messiah. This is the only hope for humanity. So make him your hope today. And so, Christian, remember, God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. In all your trials, he cares for you. God uses them for his glorious plan. And so we see, God keeps his promises, and he will keep you. Amen. Dear Lord, thank you for our great Messiah, for our Redeemer, our Lord who brings deliverance to this captive people in bondage, that you have this proclamation of good news that we can trust, that you care about us, us unimportant people, us nobodies, but that you have this message of hope. Thank you that we see that throughout the pages of Scripture, that we see these themes woven throughout this book. Please help us to live in that strength throughout this week as we go about our lives to trust in you, to make you our source of comfort, assurance, strength, perseverance, to be seeking to glorify you in all we do. So help us to be a light to spread this good news far and wide. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.